0: Hello, and welcome to ScanIt, today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. I'm Dr. Sharon Joe.
1: And I am Andrey Krenkov, and this week we'll discuss AI for Alzheimer's prediction and for climate modeling, some research into detecting phishing and for benchmarking everyday life activities, stuff about deepfakes and bias bounties, and a few fun stories about robots. Plus Jive... (laughs) So let's dive straight in with our first story of applications, which is titled The Algorithm Developed by Lithuanian Researchers Can Predict Possible Alzheimer's with Nearly 100% Accuracy. And this is from uh, the University of Kaunas University of Technology, Lithuania, where this is from. And as the title implies... Uh, in this paper, analysis of features of Alzheimer's disease, detection of blah, blah, blah. Uh, these researchers uh, share that they uh, apparently could uh, predict a possible onset of Alzheimer's disease with an accuracy of over 99%, which is seems like a big deal, if true, but also uh, seems a little not surprising, given they only worked with hundred and three subjects uh, or the data they got was from those 103 subjects. So, yeah, what, what was your impression, Sharon?
0: Having worked in this area ish uh, medical imaging, I am highly suspect <laughs> uh, that this result actually can generalize. I very much suspect that this is uh, basically overfitting to those 138 subjects, uh, even though, even if that means uh, tens of thousands of images from those uh, 100 so subjects, it still doesn't matter that it's still probably uh, overfitting to that, given what we know about um, uh, these models. Um, So I'd also be curious about, you know, if we were to dive into the paper a bit more, like, was this a prospective study? How is the data split? Obviously, it sounds like all these patients are from the same institution, so it's, it's really hard to say. That said, I'm really glad people are continuing to push on this um, and think about this as a problem because Alzheimer's as a disease is just such an important uh, part of uh, later life health and there are approximately 24 million people affected worldwide. Um, and this is expected to double every 20 years. So that's, that's huge.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's also something I like about this article. It doesn't just talk about the accomplishment, it also contextualizes it with a discussion of how big a deal this disease is and how as, you know, a populations age, as is the case in a lot of the world now, it'll be even more important. And I agree that it seems likely that there is some flaw here. I mean, they had... Fifty thousand images for training and twenty five thousand for testing. So they do at least split that. But uh, you know they categorize into six different things, and uh, particularly because it was only 138 people, it does seem like there's a good chance it won't work as well uh, when um, when uh, it attempts to be uh, expanded. But they're looking into that now. So hopefully, you know, they follow up with it and expand on this and, and see how it goes.
0: And on to our next article titled Columbia to Launch $25 Million AI Based Climate Modeling Center. And this is Columbia University. Um, and uh, it is the National Science Foundation, the NSF, that's chosen Columbia University to lead in the creation of this uh, climate modeling center. um, And it's called Learning the Earth with Artificial Intelligence and Physics, LEAP. Uh, So this is a really important collaboration um, with uh, both NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, and uh, GISS, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Um, And this will very much be pushing the next generation of data-driven physics-based climate models. So, bringing in you know the physics, but also uh, the deep learning side or data-driven um, learning side uh, of neural networks and AI in general that have been making these big leaps and putting them all together to try to help with climate science. So, this is a, a very important collaboration and just the seed of what is uh, w- what'll what'll be something big. And I think this is. Also very big because um, the essentially the the next generation of students going into Columbia University and other universities right now care a lot about climate change. And so I think this will be very relevant and be a very popular center.
1: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think, uh, as you said, this article notes that the center will train a new wave of students that will be fluent both in climate science and with big data sets and modern machine learning, which I presume is is somewhat rare. Uh, at least, you know, a lot of people who are in AI definitely aren't as aware of the physics of climate science. And it looks like also from the article, Vale, um, the center will do some other things like create uh, infrastructure for it. So it says in collaboration with Google Cloud and Microsoft, uh, they will create a platform to allow researchers to share and analyze data. So uh, that's also seemingly kind of a big deal. And so, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's nice to see this climate modeling center, uh, given that's a really essential task. And it's nice to see the NSF enabling this sort of initiative through this big investment.
0: And on to our research articles, the first titled Machine Learning Technique Detects Phishing Sites Based on Markup Visualization. Uh, and this is about a uh, And this is about a a paper that's come out using machine learning models trained on uh, the website code, the raw HTML, uh, to improve detection of phishing sites. So one thing that's really cool is that they use something called binary visualization. Uh, And what that means is they look at all the uh, markdown and they, sorry, uh, they look at all the markup and uh, they basically encode uh, different Things different colors. Uh, So for example, um, printable ASCII characters are assigned a blue color, null spaces, uh, null and spaces are black and white colored. And so they create this basically visualization of what uh, the HTML markup could look like. And they feed those visualizations into a neural network or machine learning model and uh, be able to see the difference uh, between a phishing attack and the actual website Um, and this is i think a really interesting approach of representing and pre-processing that website data that's where that's where a lot of that innovation is coming from
1: yeah i also found it very neat that they use this visualization technique of just turning like html text just taking the text and then making an image out of it this kind of uh, rectangular image because of course uh, convolutional neural nets can process images pretty easily, and they have examples in this article of what a legitimate web page looks like versus a phishing web page. And at least for this example, you know it's it's pretty stark with difference. And I suppose some kind of fake websites, you would expect the code to maybe have that hint, uh, even if it doesn't look that different from the legitimate website. So this is a neat concepts and uh, kind of interesting why they did not go some sort of text processing approach and instead converted it to an image and went that way. Uh, But yeah, cool to see that um, this approach works and that, you know, this is another application where I wasn't aware of uh, machine learning being usable, you know, detecting fish sites and now I know. And <laughs> it appears to work pretty well.
0: I definitely think a text based solution would work. <laughs> um, uh, and just directly looking at raw HTML, I think would work for a text based model. So I think uh, this is just one way of representing that data. Um, and yeah, I, I can imagine that a text based solution is forthcoming or perhaps is already out there as well. Um, and I think one just one other note about this that. It's interesting. There is this, you know, cat mouse game of like phishing attacks and then ways to detect it. Um, something that I find really interesting about this approach and just looking at the raw HTML is that I don't think a lot of people doing phishing would be would want to put in the effort to uh, fool this algorithm. Like the, this actually, I think, could eliminate a lot of different phishing attacks unless there's like some phishing creation platform or site um, that can help you format it so that it looks exactly like a, a non-phishing website. But I think this is a great example of something that, you know, in practice could actually be very useful, either the text-based solution or or the visual representation. Uh, just using the raw HTML, I think, is, is, is a good way at it.
1: Yeah, I, I also think that and just browsing a paper a bit, you uh, It does, as far as I can tell, there's not a huge amount of prior work they're citing on using machine learning for phishing detection. Uh, Of course, uh, this has been done to some extent for emails, where it's uh, another big problem of phishing. So there, presumably, they they use text-based approaches. Uh, But as you said, it's a cat and mouse game. Presumably, the, the hackers will improve their... HTML to look more legitimate. Um, But at least for now, you know, we are a bit ahead. So that's good. And on to our next uh, research story. We have Stanford's Behavior Benchmarks. Oops. We have Stanford's Behavior Benchmarks 100 Activities from Everyday Life for Embodied AI. So this is about a paper titled Behavior. Uh, colon, benchmark for everyday household activities in virtual, interactive, and ecological environments. So as the title suggests, the idea is to create a simulated uh, virtual benchmark where agents, AI agents could interact with the environment in a kind of household setup to perform everyday activities. And the ecological part means that it, you know, it looks kind of like a normal apartment. It's not some... Really weird, I don't know simulated world, but it's based on real apartments and how they are laid out and uh, what they have in them. So yeah, personally, I think this is pretty cool because so far in robotics and in reinforcement learning, we have different benchmarks, but they are really kind of somewhat um, removed from what people do. There's like block stacking. There's I don't know using hammer, but nothing that approaches you know, what we could say is a long-term goal for AI agents that are embodied to do. And it seems to make sense to say that these everyday household activities are a good measure of how useful AI agents are getting to be. And how to is pretty impressive. So yeah, uh, what did you think of it, Sharon? I think this
0: is a great set of benchmarks to come out, uh, especially since I think we've already been doing this empirically from a lot of pieces of work. I mean, just the, the act of watching the output of our robots, you know, just with my own eyes. Oh, yes, this looks about right. Um, but now codifying it and kind of uh, being able to quantify it in a way is is really, really useful. And I so I thought this was um, a great way to uh, establish a benchmark for essentially what's normal behavior um, and whether a robot or some other agent could perform normal behavior. Um, and so I thought, you know, just to give a few examples of what that means is they had, you know, different things like bringing in wood, collect misplaced items, move boxes to storage, organizing file cabinet, throwing away leftovers, putting dishes away, just things that we as humans, like <laughs> there's like such normal, easy, everyday behavior, but they are actually quite difficult for robots right now. Uh, so just being able to uh, say, hey, we're close to this or we're not close to each of these things is is very useful um, and be able to quantify what exactly does that mean? Like, what are all the actions I take for putting dishes away? What do I look like?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's a nice formalization of this very broad question of how do we benchmark, you know, AI agents' ability to do the sort of stuff we do every day. And there are 100 activities. So it's kind of interesting to browse, as you said, different examples. A lot of them involve cleaning, (laughs) cleaning your closet, cleaning your garage, cleaning the oven. Uh, And these uh, were actually chosen uh, based on results of the American time use survey. So they, you know, they actually did look into what people spend their time doing and then chose a subset that is possible to simulate uh, as far as household chores for everyday life. So they they simulate this with a physics simulator and they allow this uh, virtual reality platform to collect demonstrations. And what's interesting is uh, this paper is purely about the benchmark. So there's no there's some results as far as trying to replicate what people are capable of in virtual reality, but those are quite limited. So it's, it's really just setting up a set of tasks that is really, really difficult by present day standards for reinforcement and robotics. And then hoping that in the future we can tackle this challenge, which is, which is not usually what we see and. uh hopefully will will lead to a lot of work trying to tackle these challenges.
0: Right. And on to our ethics and society articles. The first is deep fakes in cyber attacks aren't coming. They're already here. Uh, And so this is about, uh, you know, in March, uh, the FBI had released a report declaring that malicious actors uh, will use synthetic content, so deepfakes, for uh, cyber and foreign influence operations in the next year or year and a half. Um, And this, of course, includes deepfakes, both video and audio uh, created by AI. Um, And this article is about... uh, is about uh, Rick McElroy at VMware's role in um, doing crisis and incident response. Uh, And he works closely with these teams, and he spoke with several CISOs uh, of prominent uh, companies about the rise of defake technology that they've seen, and they're concerned right now. Uh, They're already seeing, you know, ransomware as a service, RAS, R-A-A-S, and I think we've covered that a bit in our podcast before. Um, And it's just, it's already here. It's not like it's, it should be some kind of forecasted thing. It's already impacting different incident response teams.
1: Yeah. Uh, So this is kind of a take from this perspective of uh, this Rick McElroy, who's the author, And uh, he shares some interesting details from his conversations with these uh, people from prominent uh, global companies. For instance, he shares an example about Recorded Future, which is an incident response firm, which said that fact actors are on the dark web and are offering services and tutorials on how to use uh, visual and audio deepfakes. So there's now these like secondary markets where hackers don't have to be uh, experts or don't have to already know how to use these deepfakes, but can sort of be guided through it. And um, yeah, it seems like there is kind of a a tool set being built up for malicious actors. And uh, in this article, uh, he also says that he spoke of people whose security teams have observed deepfakes being used in phishing attempts. Or to compromise business email. So personally, I found this kind of interesting. I didn't realize deepfakes are already being used in cyber attacks. Uh, my impression has been, you know, there's a lot of worry about deepfakes, but you haven't seen any examples of them really causing harm. So personally, I found this quite interesting. Um, did this align with your perception of the state of deepfakes, Sharon? I thought there were kind of unsophisticated attacks
0: happening Um, and I think like people have been more and more just more and I think yourself included Andre using uh, kind of deep fakes as like profile pictures or whatever um, both benignly obviously uh, and and maliciously um, in different ways. So I think uh, I, I know that it's like this undercurrent. Uh, I didn't know how rampant it is and how much there there have to be defense systems right now.
1: Yeah. So uh, to your note, actually, this is kind of a fun story. Uh, earlier, I think like a month ago or so, I got bored of my profile picture on Twitter and Facebook, and I, I thought about what to change it to. And I actually created a deepfake, so to speak, I uploaded my picture to Artbreeder. And then, uh, you know, this um, generative model created kind of a version of it, and then I messed around with it. And then I uploaded it, uploaded it as my profile picture on um, Facebook. And I suppose the good news is people immediately saw that something was off, and were actually quite creeped out and, and called me out on it. So it was kind of funny. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess the good news is um, so far, we aren't really quite photorealistic, uh, especially voice, I think is something that could conceivably be used in really bad ways, but we uh, are not quite there yet, but it seems like we are moving in a direction and yeah, interesting to read this article that kind of shares those details.
0: I think it really depends, since um, I had actually used one of those uh, a couple of years ago. And then at the time, you know, people didn't think about deepfakes as much uh, since I guess I was one of the earlier users. And it was for a Slack profile picture, so it was really small and because it was small, people couldn't tell and when they clicked in they were like Sharon that doesn't look like you why'd you upload someone else's photo (laughs) (laughs) like okay I can see how this
1: is awkward (laughs) yeah yeah I do think uh, as you said probably going forward you know hackers will have to think of how to use these best and you know we already know that social engineering is one of the best ways to to do hacking so to speak right just dealing with humans and fooling humans. So I could imagine that deepfakes could definitely help there when people aren't expecting them, at least not yet. And onto our next ethics and society story, we have sharing learnings from the first algorithmic bias bounty challenge from Twitter. So we discussed this a couple times. We covered that this was a thing that in August, uh, uh, this year, there was the first algorithmic bias bounty challenge, where Twitter invited the ethical AI hacker community to basically inspect its cropping algorithm, which caught some heat, to try and detect issues with it, so bias and other potential harms. And you've also covered the results from that, where seemingly it was kind of successful. Uh, the, the winning team did identify some pretty novel things. And in this post, uh, basically, the uh, team at Twitter goes into some more details on what they took away from the experience and uh, shares a bit more about it, which I found pretty interesting. It's it's interesting to see kind of some of their playbook and uh, some of the details that kind of uh, they had to deal with while organizing this. And uh, as we say here in this post, uh, it does seem like they want others to take up this practice and then kind of build on it. So nice of them to to you know, write an article where they share their learnings.
0: I think it was a great article. And I'd also really commend all the, the winners um, as well as the uh, most innovative prize, which I thought was really interesting. It was looking at uh, emojis and the, the skin color of emojis and how the algorithm preferred lighter skin colored emojis too, uh, in addition to just images of, of people. Um, and there are some pretty strong analyses, uh, in the submissions and in, in, in the winners. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it was great to kind of speak about the learnings, um, and showcase the winners once more.
1: Yeah. I also found that emoji, uh, prize, quite innovative. And I also found it interesting that the third place submission uh, analyzed linguistic bias for English over Arabic script and memes, which is another thing I wouldn't have thought was part of uh, what people were looking at. And that's kind of the main takeaway uh, learning that they talk about as far as kind of specifics. They really highlight the difficulty they had with figuring out a rubric to judge the participants' submissions, uh, so make a rubric that is broad enough to allow teams to look at a variety of potential harms, even things that you know the team didn't expect, and um, also they encourage qualitative analysis as opposed to just quantitative. So as not to restrict the range of sort of things you could explore, and they, I believe, yeah, they actually shared this rubric so again, it seems like they are really making it easier for others to to do this sort of algorithmic bias bounty in the future, which which I'm quite excited about. I do think this is pretty promising.
0: And on to our fun articles, the first is could robots from Boston Dynamics beat me in a fight? Uh, and this is kind of a reflective article about um, the Boston Dynamics uh, videos that had come out, um, you know, the dancing robots, um, the parkour robots, um, and also the companion video uh, that goes with uh, the original the showing the human side of the people who who built these robots, that these robots are not perfect, uh, and I just thought it was an interesting reflection. I too, as I was watching the videos, uh, definitely had concerns. You know, there was this like undercurrent about oh, they're going to take over the world. <laughs> um, but I, I think also the article is trying to bring people to that level of consciousness and just reflection of. It's not it's not just like a fun video. This is also serious um, about about where robots are going.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting. It, it kind of, um, you know, um, shares what I guess a lot of people feel uh, in a big uh, medium. So this is, I think, an opinion piece in The New York Times. And, uh, it, it goes into that emotional response for sure. And, uh, also talks about, uh, an earlier video from Boston Dynamics, uh, talking about their dancing moves, right? Like, do you love me? And this article posits that, uh, these sorts of videos make us used to robots and distract us away from potential negative outcomes, right? We kind of grow, grow to, I don't know, humanize them, I suppose, and, you know, kind of maybe feel more uh, okay with them, even though they might be dangerous. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a short read. It's really just this kind of reflection. I would have liked to see more discussion of the actual details of how these robots work and how they are limited in various ways, if they don't have really general AI, and so on. And uh, I think it would have been nice that if this article worked a bit more to dispel some of the fear that may not be really justified. But, uh, yeah, I do think it, it was an interesting sort of reflection on on this author's feelings about it. I don't know, do you uh, <laughs> what do you feel when you see these Boston Dynamics parkour videos?
0: I mean, but like. Like I said, it's it's like fun stuff, but also just thinking about, you know, reflecting about how powerful they are.
1: Yeah, it's they are really big and bulky, so you could really imagine it being hard to fight them. Although uh, this article also notes that any decent runner could easily, you know, get away, you know, push them from behind and so on. So I think it's, it's funny how, you know, objectively, there's not much to worry from these robots, but they're kind of uh, doing more than you might expect from robots is already nerve wracking in a sense. But uh, onto our uh, next and last article, we have iRobot's newest Roomba uses AI to avoid dog poop. So apparently, this is a big problem I wasn't aware of where people's Roombas, which are, you know, AI enabled vacuum cleaners, little know yeah, circular things. Um, apparently, people have an issue uh, where their Roombas, you know, catch some dirt and in some instances, some dog poop and then it spreads it out. Right. And that's a whole big mess. And it's it's kind of funny. This article actually is all about how the latest model, the Roomba J7 Plus, you know, they really worked hard for this problem specifically. You know, they they this new Roomba has a camera and a computer vision model, and apparently they collected a data set with these sorts of objects and, and worked very hard to guarantee that this won't happen with this. $850 vacuum cleaner. So um yeah, I guess AI has really come a long way.
0: It's such a gross application <laughs> cuz you know exactly what happens if it uh does uh if it if it catches the dog poop.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's not a fun thing to imagine. So You know, uh, maybe they'll get people to pay more than $800 for it. Uh, Honestly, I'm a little surprised it took this long for them to be able to do it. But um, they seem very, very um, sure that this feature will work 100% of the time in this article. So well,
0: well, even if it doesn't work 100% of the time, I feel like it'd be helpful. Right because i think you just if there's actually poop on the ground you don't know it's there so yeah even if it can can sometimes yeah, work
1: <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> and to be fair they also say that it uses a camera to also identify other obstacles like socks shoes and headphones so in general it it does represent kind of this pretty much sure AI and robotics application, these you know vacuum cleaners have been around for like 20 years, uh, getting better and better over time. So now they map your house, they intelligently move around and now they can avoid small obstacles like socks and shoes and headphones. Um, so, you know, one day we'll get the perfect robot vacuum cleaner and never have to vacuum ourselves, hopefully.
0: Absolutely. That would be
1: that would be fantastic.
0: Yeah,
1: personally, I've had a cheap one myself for quite a while when I lived in an apartment and I liked it a lot. Just like nothing fancy, two hundred dollar robot, leave it on while I go out. It uh, It was very handy. I
0: think it's very useful since uh, we recently upgraded a little bit and made the got a slightly better robot and it was significantly less organization beforehand Uh, because I think before we had a really cheap one and we had to like organize and almost clean the whole house for the robot to start cleaning and prep the whole house for for the robot
1: that's true actually that reminds me like when i let it loose in the kitchen i used to put down chairs sideways yes. like a barrier. <laughs> yeah yeah that was uh funny and yeah now i think you can get fancy like tell it you know which parts of the house to move around and stuff like that um and this one apparently talks to you through your phone and asks you know what is an obstacle so Um, Yeah, cool to see this advance and, you know, I guess seeing computer vision really getting deployed to the edgest of edge devices or, I don't know, kind of becoming ubiquitous, I suppose.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode. If you've enjoyed our discussion of these stories, be sure to share and review our podcast. We'd appreciate it a ton. And now be sure to stick around for a few more minutes to get a quick summary of some other cool news stories from our very own newscaster, Daniel Bashir.
2: Thanks, Andre and Sharon. Now we'll go through a few other interesting stories we haven't touched on. Our first is on the research side. If deep learning is to live up to its promise, it will need to become far more capable than it is now. According to VentureBeat, DeepMind is working on bridging the worlds of deep learning and classical algorithms. Researchers at DeepMind are interested in problems like getting a neural network to divulge what it doesn't know or to learn more quickly. Their collaborations have brought forth a new line of research, called Neural Algorithmic Reasoning, or NAR. The thesis of NAR is that if deep learning methods could better mimic algorithms, then they would possess the generalization capabilities that algorithms have. It turns out that this is surprisingly hard, even for very simple algorithms. Asking a deep learning algorithm to simply copy its input by training it on the numbers 1 through 10 will not result in it knowing what to do with numbers close to a thousand. There are a number of differences between the two paradigms, and the way to marry them is not entirely clear, but it seems like a promising and important research direction. Our second story is about business. In its latest round, enterprise AI startup Databricks secured $1.6 billion in its Series H funding round. According to Ben Dixon of BD Tech Talks, this round of investment follows on the heels of a recent $1 billion round, giving Databricks a valuation of $38 billion. The company offers products and services for unifying, processing, and analyzing data stored in different ways and locations. Enterprise AI companies, which include Databricks as well as Snowflake and C3AI, are addressing some of the biggest challenges in the way of companies trying to launch machine learning products to cut down operations costs, improve products, and increase revenue. Thanks to cloud services like AWS and Azure, these companies have been able to collect massive amounts of data, but putting that data to use is another problem entirely. Data might be spread around different systems and under different standards, using a variety of schemas. This makes it difficult to consolidate data and prepare it for consumption by machine learning models. Databricks' main cloud service, Lakehouse, uses its founders' previous work to bring different sources of data together and enable data scientists and analysts to run workloads from a single platform. Their services have been used by AstraZeneca and HSBC, among others. The market is competitive and it remains to be seen whether the valuations of these companies are justified. Big tech players are also entering the market. Dixon, for his part, would be unsurprised if Databricks' present partnership with Microsoft turns into an acquisition. Finally, our society story concerns a personal project that used OpenAI's GPT-3. According to Gadgets360, AI researcher and game designer Jason Rohrer used the language model to create a chatbot named Samantha during the pandemic. He had programmed Samantha to be friendly, warm, and curious. He also allowed others to customize the chatbot, and one man turned it into a proxy of his dead fiance. When OpenAI learned about the project, it asked him to dilute it to prevent possible misuse or shut it down. He was also asked to add an automated monitoring tool. When he refused, OpenAI finally told Roar he was no longer allowed to use its technology. He responded by asking others to stop using OpenAI's technology, accusing them of callousness and destroying people's life's work. It's fair to be concerned about possible misuses of such capable technologies, but it is worth considering who should be policing their use. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with even more content at skynetoday.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review if you like the show. Be sure to tune in when we return next week.